We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. You are what you eat, the old saying goes, but our guest today is asking if we can improve not only our physical health, but our state of mind by eating better. Distinguished psychologist Kimberly Wilson's recent book is Unprocessed, how the food we eat is fueling our mental health crisis. In it, she explores the tangible links between diet and how the mind works. She's former governor for the Tavistock and Portman NHS Mental Health Trust and has a master's degree in nutrition. She also has previously led therapy services at Europe's largest women's prison, so she knows firsthand about the importance of food and its role in mental health. Joining Kimberly in conversation is Christian Jarrett, cognitive neuroscientist and editor of Psyche magazine. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and enjoy a full-length longer version, you can support our work by going to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or subscribe to our channel on Apple. Let's join now Kimberly Wilson and Christian Jarrett in conversation. Welcome everybody to this Intelligence Squared event with Kimberly Wilson. I thought a good place to start would be with the strapline of your book. You say how the food we eat is fueling our mental health crisis. So what is this mental health crisis? Are we definitely in a mental health crisis or is it just that there's more awareness and openness? Yeah, I think I think it would depend on, on your perspective. So some of the researchers that have been looking at this area and talking about it since the 70s would say we are very much in the crisis. Others would say, look, things are, rates are rising, concerns are increasing. There's certainly things that we need to be thinking about. I think it would be worth, and I think it's helpful to position things, I would say, as a kind of brain health crisis. And I think within that context, under that umbrella, there really are a lot of things for us to be concerned about. So um, as a broad kind of lifespan issue, we have what we've been seeing for a few decades, which is a reversal in the Flynn effect, which we can certainly talk about. Um, and then if we talk about the chronological risks and uh, indicators, we're seeing a rise in neurodevelopmental disorders. Now, again, some of that might be down to better rates of uh, recognition, but we also do see um increased severity and increased levels in particular populations, which would indicate that there really is something going on. Um, And this rise in neurodevelopmental disorders 
whilst again it has lots of risk factors we know that nutrition plays a role in the risk factors for conditions for example on the autism spectrum so that would include things like maternal health factors and we know that diabetes adiposity or obesity hypertension are risk factors um, in utero nutrition is also a risk factor for these neurodevelopmental conditions so things like insufficient folic acid omega-3 um, we also know that preterm birth and low birth weight are risk factors, and they are, of course, nutritionally linked. Um, we have a rise in disorders of inattention, and that has been experimentally linked to nutritional factors. And then, particularly in the UK, rates are uh, growing across uh, the globe. But in the UK, our leading cause of death is dementia, and we know that uh, a healthy Mediterranean-style diet has been demonstrated to be a protective factor um, against neurocognitive decline. And um, that's not the diet that most people are eating. So there's a role for nutritional factors in brain health. And if we think about mental health as an emerging, emergent property of brain health, then there's a role for nutritional factors. And I think what's important about them is that things like genetics are immutable. Uh, risk factors like poverty take a long time to turn around. And what's important for us to understand about the role of nutrition is that where there is will, it's a risk factor and a determinant that is uh, malleable and can be shifted pretty quickly if we get our act together. Okay, so there's a few, a few um, problems on the increase there that you mentioned. The uh, yeah, autism, uh, you talked about attentional regulation, so ADHD. Um, let's zoom in on one on one uh, shocking statistic in your book. So you you did refer to it. Then you said a reversal of the Flynn effect. So, so some of our listeners might not be aware. So the Flynn effect was this finding over decades, wasn't it, of gradually rising average IQ. Yeah. You're saying that has that's actually go, started to go into reverse, has it, in some countries? Yeah, um, in in particular in Western countries. So countries like uh, Denmark, Australia, Germany, the the average IQ scores have been in decline since at least the 90s. Some researchers put it a little bit further back than that. Um, and certainly one research paper says that high scores in the UK have been decimated. And the thing about the Flynn effect is that, yeah, First of all, this has been a, a gradual ongoing increase essentially since records began and IQ was first started to be researched over 100 years ago. Um, and the, the increases have been attributed mainly to three factors. So um, one was a reduced exposure to neurotoxins and other uh, chemicals, compounds, toxins in the environment that would damage either brain development or brain function. So kind of taking lead out of pipes and paints and things like that, um, reducing that kind of toxic burden and, and the, the impairment on neurodevelopment. Um, increased access to education was the another factor so that more people had access to and better quality education and that was associated with increase, but also better nutrition. Um, and there are some very very well-known kind of non-controversial associations between nutrition and IQ, one of those being iodine. Um, and the World Health Organization calls iodine deficiency something like the leading cause of preventable brain damage worldwide. And we know that iodine is required to kickstart the development of all the organs in the body during um, gestation, but particularly the brain. And it's responsible for neuronal density, how well connected and how dense the neurons are in the brain. Um, we know that people who grow up in areas 
of iodine deficiency and, and often historically those have been inland areas because iodine is found in fish and seafood and seaweed. So coastal areas tend to be well supplied, but inland areas, landlocked areas tend to be at higher risk. People in those areas, those deficiency areas, have IQs of up to kind of 15 points on average lower than those uh, sufficient areas. Um, So this is well known, it's well established, the association is there. But what we see very worryingly in a a study of of British uh, pregnant women was that 67% of them had mild to moderate iodine deficiency. So even in the case of a well-known nutrient that affects um, brain development and IQ, this kind of stepwise correlation you can see in the research between maternal iodine consumption and child IQ, even though that's well-established, still we have deficiencies of a very easy to attain or easy to supplement nutrient. And so it's factors like this, the nutrients that we know that are absolutely essential to brain development, like iodine, choline, omega-3, are increasingly the nutrients that are in short supply in the average adult's diet. Yeah, very worrying. Now, let's just zoom out um, for a moment, because I think when it comes to the importance of diet and nutrition, I think for many people, it's obvious how important that is for physical health. Less obvious that food uh, will be relevant to mental health and brain health. But this is actually goes to the heart of your approach, doesn't it? Recognizing just how deeply interconnected brain and body, mind and body are. Could, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, a bit for, for example, one thing in your book that caught my eye was, um, I think you meant you talked about, you know, if someone's in therapy and talk perhaps CBT and attending uh, to their thoughts, the thoughts that, because we're, you know, we're told our, the, the thoughts we're having can affect our feelings and you get this cycle going. But you say, well, that's not much use if your body is sending these signals of, for example, hunger. Mm. Yeah, and I think, I guess I'll approach that in two ways. So one is, I think we, one of the reasons we neglect the importance of nutrition for the brain is often that we're just not thinking about the brain at all. If someone attends their doctor or even a psych, um, you know, they go to primary care and say, I have, I'm having, I don't know, heart palpitations or high, I've got, I, I feel faint, I feel, um, hot and sweaty or whatever, you know, they're expressing, they're describing a series of symptoms that might indicate that there's something something going on with their heart. What's often, of course, likely to happen is that their GP will say, okay, well, your symptoms, the things that you're describing, you're struggling with, tell us something about the underlying health of the organ, your heart. And even with something like diabetes, people, you rarely have a conversation about diabetes without someone saying, well, it's something to do with the the way your your pancreas is functioning. But when someone presents either to their GP or a psychologist or anybody else, any other mental health practitioner with their symptoms, if they're saying, I'm finding it hard to concentrate, I'm, uh, it's, I feel flat, I feel low, I, um, everything is seemingly fine, but there's something going on, I, I have brain fog, whatever it might be, you might get a diagnosis or a conversation perhaps about stress, anxiety, um, the pressures that you're under, depression maybe, but you're unlikely to have a conversation about the way that those symptoms are telling us something about the underlying health of your organ. So we have this separation in the association between the symptom and the organ when it comes to the brain and mental health. Um, And I think that goes across the board whether we're talking about physical health 
physical health, mental health psychiatry. Um, but I think the other thing is that, and I guess that's the association is that we think very much neck up and neck down when it comes to health. And what we know or what we're learning about uh, emotional states in particular is that they're not just what happens in your brain. Your emotions are now understood to be a synthesis between the information that's coming through your body, um, and we call that valence, that sense of internal pleasantness or unpleasantness. And often that might be conscious, so you'll know if you have a stone in your shoe or or your clothes are too tight or you, or you feel cold. Um, but often that's very unconscious as well. So you won't know consciously whether it's your your blood sugar has dropped and so you're feeling agitated or whether you are coming down with a cold or something we know that when people one of the first symptoms of um uh, physical illness, you know, like a cold or a virus and something like that is a drop in mood. And that seems to be associated with the unconscious effects of the immune system on the brain. So your emotional states are understood to be a synthesis of what's happening in your body being, you know, uh, sent to your brain and your brain interpreting that in association with the information that's coming in from the outside world and your available emotion concepts. So the way you feel isn't just about the way you think, you know, your emotions aren't just about the way you're thinking, it's about how your brain is making sense of that in the context of the information that's also coming in from your body. Um, and there again, we have a role for the body in the way that the, the brain is functioning. And that will include things like physical activity. We know that physical activity is protective against depression and other brain related conditions, but also nutrition as, as well, of course. And the brain is made of nutrients um, and it needs nutrients to function. Your neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine, acetylcholine are made from nutrients, um, not just as their precursors. Um, so if you think about the brain as a, um, as almost a conveyor belt in a factory, you turn an amino acid tryptophan into serotonin, but the workers on that production line are nutrients, they're iron, they're vitamin C, they're phosphorus. And so you need adequate nutrition to do the synthesis, to do the actual production of these compounds that we know are important for just having and helping your brain to work well anyway. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, you mentioned physical activity there and something else I wanted to ask you because I think people who enjoy reading popular psychology books and mental health books, a message we, we are often given is, for example, if you read a book on sleep, the author will say sleep is vi- absolutely vital <laughs> to your mental health. Um, if you read a book on sport and exercise, that's what they emphasize. Uh, there are other books, you know, who talk about um, our social relations. They're absolutely the number one most important thing, you know, to, to feel uh, belonging and have uh, meaningful relationships and so on. Where do you, in that, you know, it, in that uh, arrangement of different factors, where how important is nutrition? Is it as important or more important? How would you put it? Um, yes, um, I would say so. Some in terms, a it kind of depends on what you're looking at. So for things like um, dementia prevention um, or risk reduction, some of the ro- most robust evidence really is in physical activity, um, both aerobic and um, resistance training, really being able to reduce the rate at which you lose brain volume, helping to maintain the connectivity in the brain. Um, and and we can't really dispute that at all. Um, if we are thinking about brain development, I think nutrition uh, wins out there. And I think when we're thinking about brain health and mental health, we really need to think of it as a long game, you know, that the Brain, first of all, it takes a very, very long time to be fully developed. You know, your your prefrontal cortex isn't thought to be fully baked until you're about the age of 25. So you have this very long process of neuronal development, which gets kickstarted, of course, in utero. And that's why we need to really think about preconception nutrition, because the, the neural crest, the part of the uh, developing embryo that becomes the brain and spinal cord really start to develop very, very early. And so the nutritional status at conception becomes really important for the um, the foundations of the brain. Um, and if you think, and that is the analogy that I use, if you think about the brain 
as a house and that you're building, then the foundations are absolutely crucial. Because if you get to 25, 30, 50, you can, there are things you can do to help, you know, so so follow the analogy, you can double glaze, you can fix the roof, you can, you know, paint the walls. But if the foundations are fundamentally vulnerable, you are always going to have a vulnerability in the structure. And this is why I think the, the evidence that we have around poor maternal nutrition um, and poor maternal health, and, and to be fair, also paternal nutrition plays its role, but as this women do the heavy lifting, um, poor uh, maternal health and nutrition, preconception and in utero is, is where we're building those foundations. And I think that's where nutrition really uh, has, has the, the primacy. And again, it's something that we can really enact very, very quickly, whether that's through subsidies on foods for pregnant women, whether that's on improved supplementation formulation. In this part of brain development, in this part of the mental health story, I think nutrition um, wins out. And then later on, other factors are really important. And of course, um, we, we're integrated beings and we need to think of ourselves holistically and in an integrated way. Um, but yes, I think it depends on what specific area you're thinking about and which part of the lifespan we're, we're considering. Now, so when it comes to improving our nutrition, some of it, some of the problem is the harmful things we are uh, feeding ourselves and our, and our children. And you hint at this in the title of your book, Unprocessed, because of course, something that comes up a lot in your book is uh, you refer to ultra processed foods. Uh, what is a processed food or especially an ultra processed, highly processed food? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a, a very controversial in the research literature um, designation at the moment. And which is why I kind of put it into one chapter and the rest of the book is really thinking about the nutrients that are required and why they're not present in the average adult's uh, diet. An ultra processed food, though, to get to the point, is... Um, there's a very long definition. There's a very long uh, scientific definition. And of course, as with anything in kind of biology, there are fuzzy edges and there are um, exceptions. But broadly, we're talking about foods that are sold, ready to eat, ready to heat, and in which you'll find, they often have added um, fat, sugar, or oil, and in which you'll find an ingredient or a process that can't be replicated or you wouldn't normally find in a domestic setting. So in terms of ingredients, that's things like um, artificial flavorings, even if they're called natural flavorings, so added flavorings. Um, and there's a question about how that might affect nutrient sensing, uh, your brain and your body's ability to work out what nutrients are in the food that you're consuming. Um, it might be emulsifiers, and there are ongoing questions about the impact of the emulsifiers on the gut microbiome. Um, there's uh, issues around the composition of the food. So often these ultra processed foods tend to be very, very soft, and your brain uses information from your jaw and your chewing, again, to make estimates about the amount of, in, of uh, nutrition and energy that is coming in. So there's a question about how the composition of these foods might be affecting your brain's ability to estimate nutrient and energy intake. Um, so uh, those, uh, those are the ingredients and then um, the processes might be things like extrusion, just things that you absolutely wouldn't be able to do, to do in a domestic kitchen. Um, and 
by various estimates, at least, and in many cases, more than 50% of the average adult's diet is composed of these foods. And the issue from my perspective is, and I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that, you know, a chocolate bar is going to um, cause irrevocable damage to your brain. From my position, what I'm saying is your brain is the hungriest organ in the body. It has an enormous energy and nutrient demand. You know, I was talking about the production of uh, neurotransmitters and um, omega-3 fatty acids are structural components of the brain. They are irreplaceable. You cannot synthesize them. They must come from your diet. So you have this very important, very, very hungry organ that must be, in order to function well, must be supplied with sufficient protein, water, but vitamins, minerals, and essential fatty acids. Now, by definition, when you process a food, you remove many of its key nutrients. You know, the reason that white flour is fortified with you know, thiamine is because thiamine is found in the in bran. Thiamine is essential for, for nerve health. It's found in the bran. So when you take the bran off, when you take something from a whole grain and turn it into a processed grain, you lose the thiamine. You lose 80% of the magnesium. When you process a, a whole food, you lose a lot of its nutrition. And so if over 50% of the average adult's diet is composed of foods that by definition are lacking in these nutrients, then what we can see and what is demonstrated in the research is that the higher your consumption of these, this kind of category of foods, the lower your intake and the lower your status of these nutrients, other than the ones that are fortified in white flour. Um, and therefore, the less able your brain is to have access to what it needs to function well. So we're talking, so microwave meals, definitely. <laughs> Breakfast cereals? Um, many of them, um, particularly ones many that are targeted at children. Yeah. So it's that, that kind of thing. Uh, what, what about, um, you know, fruit juice? Cart a carton of fruit juice is, is that so is that this, would uh, often that... Uh, so a fruit juice would off, would fall into the category of kind of processed or minimally processed so if you've just taken a whole fruit and squeezed it fruit juice drinks where it's and I include an example in the book where you have like five or ten percent actual juice and then it's mm. sugar sweetener emulsifier thickening acidity regulators that would be considered an ultra processed product. Uh, just a quick reminder to anyone watching to add their questions um, at the bottom of the screen and uh, to tweet as well with the hashtag IQ2. Um, so those are some things we shouldn't be having and you're saying of course a side effect is that we, we, we then have a deficit in the nutrients, the healthy nutrients that we do need. And one of those that comes up time and again in, in, in your book is the uh, fatty oils, is that right? The essential fatty oils. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it would be helpful maybe to zoom in on that for a moment. So these are these we get these from fish primarily. Is that yeah. right? So really, and there are a few omega three fats, but really when we're thinking about the structure and function of the brain, um, two crop up really that are most important. One called EPA and DHA. So um, DHA is a cosahexaenoic acid, and DHA is the one that is the structural fat. So if you're thinking about your, again, your, your brain as a house, um, a good proportion of the bricks in that house are DHA. And uh, it's considered an essential fat because 
you cannot, your body cannot synthesize it. You must get it from the diet. Now, I guess strictly, we have the pathways to synthesize it, but they are very, very slow. They're very, very poor. Um, and lots of aspects of your daily life can impair that process. So the pro- proportion of saturated fat, whether you're a man or a woman, your age, those things affect the ability to convert, sorry, not synthesize, convert ALA, which is another omega-3, into this DHA. So you have to get it from your diet. Um, and it comes from in, in most abundantly oily fish and seafood. So your sardines and mackerel, trout, herring. Um, And what's really important about DHA, what's really unique about DHA and why it's considered irreplaceable is it's this very long structural uh, fat. Um, It's very unsaturated. Um, So the analogy I use in the book is if you, when we're thinking about saturation, if you imagine a a long dining table, and that's the kind of spine of the fat, and then at the table, the chairs are the other carbon atoms. Um, In a saturated fat, all of those seats are taken. So it's a very stable fat, nothing really moves, and that makes them stackable and solid at room temperature. And in a unsaturated fat, a lot of those seats are empty. So the, you know, people can move around and it's a a much more flexible kind of structure. The reason that that flexibility that is, is really important is because it gives your brain cell membranes fluidity. So your, and the reason that you want fluidity is because again, you've got this very, very hungry organ, this very, very high level of metabolic activity you know your your brain is burning through many many more calories uh, kind of per gram than you would expect for an organ its size and so what that means is um is that you need lots of ingredients coming in if you think of it like say a busy restaurant you need lots of capacity for those ingredients to come in to be converted to be transformed to be utilized to be used for respiration and then you need to be able to remove the waste products, the toxic proteins that might accumulate and so forth, the um, reactive oxygen species that might accumulate as just a normal process um, or byproduct of um, metabolism. And so that flexibility is what allows that to happen, as well as the conductance, the ability to send signals. Um, You need DHA in order for your synapses, the ends of your your brain cells to be um, the kind of essentially the right shape to be able to dock with receptors and to make sure that you're able to send signals from one cell to another. And effectively, everything that your brain does is sending a signal from one brain cell to another. So uh, DHA is essential. And um, SACN, the the government's nutritional advisory committee, uh, recommended I think back in 1994, that we should be eating two portions of fish per week, or which one should be oily, to help us reach those minimum recommendations. And at that level, that was um, estimated, it was modelled to be able to reduce um, heart health risks and uh, preterm, uh, you know, fetal outcomes um, in pregnancy. But it was also considered a minimum standard. It was considered the least we should aim for in order to get these beneficial outcomes. And in the 30 years since that recommendation was made, we haven't even started to reach those levels. Most adults are getting one or two portions of fish per month instead of one or two portions of fish per week. So for a long time, we've been knowingly lacking in these absolutely essential nutrients for the brain. Um, And it doesn't appear that that Um, deficit is being made up through something like supplementation. 
So let's look brief. Let's look briefly at some of the ways these nutritional problems are playing out. So you've you've touched a few times on maternal health. So that yeah. that is you actually say that's actually preconception, right? That begins that influence. So if if a if a mother to be uh, has a nutritionally poor diet, preconception that's a factor during pregnancy, post pregnancy. And just to play devil's advocate for a moment, what would you say? What would you say to? I, th- I think some mothers feel like they're sensitive to the idea of mother blaming. How? What, what sure. would you say to them in this context? Sure. No, I I, I totally um, I totally hear that, and I I talk about that in the book, and I don't I wouldn't want anybody to hear this as um, critique or blaming. Uh, certainly not of the individual, because I think when people have the information, they use the information, they utilize the information. When they have access to the resources, they make use of those resources. I think the issue here is in a lack of delivery of that information to the people who need it most. So for example, um, most, and I, and I did a kind of opportunity sample of, of my um, social media, uh, my Instagram following, and asked women who had recently given birth what nutrients they were told about um, in order to have a healthy pregnancy. And they said, overwhelmingly, everybody was told about folic acid. And then some people were told about vitamin D. Cochrane, uh, I mean, two or three, maybe four years ago now, uh, which is the international resource for kind of meta-analyses that make recommendations for health, did a, a review of the omega-3 research. And they found that supplementing pregnant women with omega-3 fatty acids during uh, pregnancy um, could reduce preterm birth, and preterm birth is associated with a lot of physical and mental and, and brain health risks, could prevent preterm birth by up to, I think, 42%. That recommendation isn't being disseminated down to people who are in the preconception phase or early pregnancy. And that recommendation isn't being, uh, I I, I messaged the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists to see whether they were updating their information to include this recommendation from Cochrane. They said, no, they said, maybe NICE are NICE are updating their details, um, their recommendations, it might be in that. I checked those guidance um, documents, it wasn't in there. So recommendations that could meaningfully improve health outcomes that are there in the research. The same with choline, um, which has been shown, scientific committees have said choline must be in pre-pregnancy supplements. It should be there. And that was, I mean, I can't remember the exact, that was years ago that that recommendation was made. It's still not in the majority of uh, pregnancy supplements. So even if women were aware of it, they can't get access to it. So this isn't about blaming individuals at all. It's really about saying and asking why, if this evidence, if this research, if this information that could make a meaningful improvement to the brain health and therefore life outcomes of babies and children and the population, why are we failing to implement it? Why are we failing to get that information disseminated into primary care where it can make the most difference? Thank you. We've got two minutes and one more question. What What do you think of the kind of food that is given out by food banks? Would you, would you want to see healthier choices included? I think almost by definition, the foods that's given 
to and out by food banks tends to be, um, and I know there are, uh, you know, um, there are individual settings where people have access to more fresh fruit and vegetables and they run by, by like markets, but they tend to be ultra processed foods because one of the benefits of ultra processed foods is that they have a very long shelf life and they often don't need long intensive cooking like a bag of dry beans or wood. Um, and so almost by definition, um, they will be, uh, more more likely to be ultra processed and have a lower nutrient density. Um, I think that that then creates a double whammy where people on low incomes who are already priced out of a healthy diet then tend to have less opportunity to get those healthy nutrients through a food bank parcel. And again, that's a kind of, it's a double scandal. And I'm not sure in the immediacy that there's much that can be done about that. You can't kind of donate fruits and vegetables if they're not going to be given out often um, or if they're going to kind of go off very quickly. Um, And so that's, again, a policy issue about the ability. We know that when people's wages and welfare go down, that the first thing they cut back on is fruits and vegetables. So it's about actually ensuring that people have enough money to cover their bases, to to pay for a um, nutritious diet. And maybe, maybe, I don't know how able how possible this is giving food banks the opportunity to have access to more fresh fruit and vegetables that they can um offer and give out but yes they by definition it's less likely to be the whole nutritious diet that the government recommends people eat to stay healthy thanks kimberly and uh congratulations again on a brilliant and important book good luck getting your message out there um My thanks to Kimberly Wilson uh, for taking part today. Thank you to our audience. Thank you for your questions. And thank you to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy the full conversation, head over to intelligencesquared.com and sign up to become a member to explore even more discussion and a host of member benefits. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.